Hi, I'm Mark Wade, and you're listening to the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 78 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Verbonis, and as always, I am joined by the best gosh darn co-host out there. That would be Mr. Bob Lucius. Hey, Bob. Great googly moogly. <laughs> I know I should know that. Great googly moogly, but it's, it's you know you know about I'm not I'm not tying it in anything this time. I know, but I should know what great googly moogly is from. Oh uh, well, um, you know, I should know too. I, it's obviously a saying. Something I think the last time I saw it was during like a Snickers commercial, where the where <laughs> the guy's painting in the end zone uh, uh-huh. for the Kansas City Chiefs, and somebody comes up and says, "Who are the chefs?" <laughs> and, he went, and the, the old man he's painting the, the the word chiefs accidentally wrote chefs and he goes great googly moogly that's the oh, last time i remember here uh, <laughs> but anyway i'm saying great googly moogly because i am very excited today bob we have a special guest who joined the show um we've had some great guests uh in our last 70 some episodes um and we've had some great captain america writers on here we've had that's Steve Englehart with yeah. J.M. DeMatteis. And now, now we have one of my favorites. That'd be Mr. Mark Wade. I mean, this is incredible. This is incredible. Yeah, I mean, it just keeps getting better and better, right? Yeah. Well, I don't want to compare writers, Bob, but, you know, what would Cap, <laughs> what would Cap do, Bob? He, he wouldn't compare. He, he would, they're, they're all great in their own in their own way they are all great in their own way but i just meant collectively you know you know right now i just saw in the news right neil diamond he's uh-huh. making so i think he sold his uh his song uh collection his uh is that, that what they call song it? sung blue uh, all of them yeah all of them right mm-hmm. yeah he sold it for like one <laughs> gazillion dollars i think is was the oh. figure i heard yeah it's a technical uh, term yeah so what i'm thinking is i mean this this sort of collection of podcasts is becoming increasingly valuable that's true to historians to collectors to fans 100 years hence from now rick they're going to say it just keeps getting better and better yeah yeah well you know and and we have to thank our listeners right uh our listeners who uh come back every week and and listen to us ramble on about captain america comic books and and then occasionally you know, once a month we have a guest on. Uh, so we appreciate their support. Uh, we appreciate you listening. We appreciate you sharing. We appreciate the, the five-star reviews. You know, Bob, you can also review now on Spotify. So we, we, we appreciate those who are doing that. And also we appreciate our patrons who are supporting us, uh, kicking in, you know, uh, $4.99 a month or, you know, $9.99 a month or whatever it is. And we appreciate that because, uh, you know, we have to cover our expenses. So, so no, thank you no. very much to our patrons who are helping with that. We should be taking, do we take a Bitcoin yet, Rick? Mm. No, it's going up, I think. So yeah, is it? Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll take trades and original <laughs> art. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, or, or classic comics. Speaking of classic comics, Bob, I have to tell you, I am so excited. Guess what finally shipped in? Was it that order of toilet paper from Costco? Oh, no, that's on back order. No, oh. uh, no, my cabinets, my custom made cabinets. Oh, you've been talking my about comic those. Books. I know, right? Yeah. So there's this uh, a company out there. They're called Nerdstalgia, right? So it's kind of like nostalgia, but Nerdstalgia. Um, they, they're, they're carpenters, right? And it's a mom and pop shop. And they make custom cabinets for comic books. So I used to have, I mean, obviously... You know, we all have our, our long boxes, you know, made out of cardboard and, uh, and, you know, listen, I'm an adult. It's time to get out of my cardboard boxes. Right. And uh-huh. I did, I had this metal filing cabinet and it started to, it didn't start to not work well and it didn't look very good. And it was a big pain to buy. Um, so I came across on Facebook, uh, on, uh, nerdstalgia and it's, uh, facebook.com forward slash the classy collector so i went on to their facebook page because i saw some other people mentioning it and i looked at the pictures and i was like wow and um you know they have all kinds of sizes right they have sizes for for you know you could you could get something that's two drawers high you get something that's three or four you can get them wide um they all kind of mix and matches right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and they have sizes uh not just for for your traditional bags and boards comics but also for graded comics as well so anyway um Mm -hmm. i finally got mine in because you could choose between different types of wood styles and what's really cool about them bob is not only they're they're really nice wooden filing cabinets that are perfectly made for size of comic books for each drawer but in the front, there's a section where you can slide in the comic book that represents the comics that are in that drawer. Nice. Right? That's nice. Yeah. And so it's, it looks really cool from the display perspective. And then it makes a really nice tabletop to put your statues or your your signed comics or whatever you want, you know, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. up on top, your figures. Um, anyway, so it uh, and, and you know what? My fiance she loves them she was like when she got when the gate came in she just raved about them she was like yeah. oh my god they're so handsome and uh mm-hmm. and anyway so i yeah, i'm yeah. i'm really excited to another right yeah hey i i will tell you i i uh, you sent a picture to me and i showed my wife the picture and i thought she was just going to slap me uh, <laughs> but she didn't she said hey those are pretty cool why don't you uh, think about getting some some of those which i she might have well have slapped me because I almost fell off my chair when she said that because she's, you know, you know, but that's how good they look. Yeah, no, honestly. And then, well, you know, Bob, now is the time to get them because uh, my buddy Tim at Nerdstalgia will hook you up if you mention that you are a Cap fan or, uh, you know, that you heard it, heard it on this podcast. Um they'll throw in uh $50 off your order. It's a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, 50 bucks off. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll also post pictures of my, my cabinets uh, on, in the Facebook group um, when this podcast comes out so people can see it. And uh, um, I'll include a link in, in that post, but I'll also include a link in the show notes. So if you want to check it out again, it's facebook.com forward slash the classy collector. 
and tell Tim, uh, Rick sent you, Cap Fan sent you, and you'll get 50 bucks off. All right. Well, I'm going to be looking for those notes, Rick, because I, I I don't know. Father's Day is coming up in a, a little bit, right? So That's Mother's Day is coming up. So maybe I'll order them for my wife. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> all right, Bob. Well, let's get to our guest because um, all Cap fans know the name Mark Wade. Of course, all comic fans know the name Mark Wade, right? He's he's written over a, a thousand different stories, uh, over 22,000 different pages of comic script. And, and, and so he's synonymous with comic books uh, the last few decades, uh, but he's no stranger to Captain America have, having been on various stints. Uh, so we can't wait to talk to him about each and every one of his Captain America projects. Yeah, this is this is uh, I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time, and uh, and I know he's a thinking man, so I can't wait to ask him some uh, you know some questions about uh, his inspiration, sort of things that drive him, uh, things he thinks about when he writes. This is going to be great. Oh yeah, yeah, and and stick around to the very end because he 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 talks about how he finally after twenty five years unlocked the the true essence of captain america uh, it was uh well well worth the wait for for the very end so uh all right well let's get let's get to our conversation with mark your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger l-theanine and caffeine brainy chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus stay chill or get energized be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So our next guest knows Captain America. In various stints over the last 25 years, he's written over 60 solo cap stories, not including his time on Avengers and other books. Even that, though is a drop in the bucket during his career. Ranked as number 11 all time, having written over 22,000 pages, translating into over a thousand stories. As an editor and Eisner award-winning writer, he spent most of his career with DC and Marvel, but has also worked on over a dozen other publishers, such as Archie, Valiant, Dark Horse, CrossGen, Image, Boom, uh, as well as co-founded Thrillbent Comics. We're excited to have him take a brief pause and join us today. Mark, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, sir. We're very excited to have you. So as the title to the show is Captain America comic book fans, and like us and our listeners, you started out as a fan. Before we get into your work with the Captain America character, maybe you could tell the listeners about how you went from being a, a huge comic book fan to actually working in the industry. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I always wanted to be a part of comics ever since I was a kid. Uh, I didn't want to be an artist because I didn't think that I could draw. Um, I didn't have the discipline. And to be honest, I, I didn't want to be a writer. I wanted to be an editor. I got into the business because I wanted to, to be an editor because I, I honestly didn't think 
I could have ideas for stories every single month. That seemed insane to me. Uh, so I worked a lot of conventions. I was the guy who was driving you back and forth to the airport uh, and stopping along the way to get your Popeye's fried chicken or whatever you were asking for. Uh, or in Dave Sims case, I was the guy who drove, drove you through Dealey Plaza because you wanted, you're a JFK nut and you wanted to see it. And so that helped me network, you know, that, that got me known to a lot of these comics professionals. And I, from there, I also started doing fan press stuff back when there were magazines called Amazing Heroes and, and Comics Buyer's Guide and so forth. Uh, I would be doing interviews and, and, you know, historical pieces and so forth. But again, doing these interviews helped connect me also again to comics creators, but also to comic book editors. Uh, eventually, I became the editor of Amazing Heroes magazine, the fan magazine, for a very short period of time. Uh, but after that, I was asked to come aboard DC Comics as an associate editor. Uh, this is, again, because I known people. They had seen that I was capable of being an editor. You know, they knew I was proficient with the English language or whatever um, and went on staff for a few years. That's so it's a it's a circuitous path. And as I am very fond of saying, uh, the, the trick to getting into comics is that once you get in, it's like trying to get into a high tech military compound. The moment you get in, everybody runs around to seal off the way you got in. So, you, you know, there's no two paths <laughs> in the same way. I can vouch for that. I can, I can vouch yeah. for that, Rick, having yeah. been in those, those high tech security facilities. <laughs> yep. yep. Oh my God. There's a cheek in the, in the, uh, right. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Mark, I, uh, I, I was struck by reading uh, a blog post that you made at uh, markway, markway.com. Mm -hmm. And in it, you were talking about sort of one of the early influences uh, on the way that you approach storytelling. And you were mm -hmm. talking about how uh, in Action Comics 500, Superman tells a story about crypto. Yeah. And you went on to talk about this, this idea of the superhero condition and how important it was for um, compelling storytelling. Yeah. And so um, and, and in fact, that it's it's become a, a sort of a, a foundational bedrock, I think, uh, to to your own way of, of writing. Yeah. And so I, I wondered if um, what you think that means with respect to, to Captain America, Steve Rogers and, um, and and how would that sort of influenced your approach to writing Captain America? And if there was any particular story arc or panel or page that sort of exemplified this superhero condition. Sure, absolutely. Although it, more technically, it's the superhuman condition. Is, is okay. What we call it. So, as opposed to the human condition, it's it's writing about these characters by just stepping into their shoes and living in that skin and seeing the world through those characters' eyes, not just when they're punching stuff and not just when they're using superpowers, but what is your life like on a day to day basis. What every moment of your life, when I was writing Daredevil, for instance, you know, uh, the blind superhero, I would every every day at one point or another, I'd be looking around wherever I was going. I wonder how Daredevil would perceive this mm -hmm. with his super senses right now. You know, when I'm writing Superman, I think about, OK, what what is it like to walk around in a world where everything's made out of cardboard, you know, uh, and you have to be controlling yourself 24 mm -hmm. seven. Uh, and same with Cap. Like with Cap, it was, I'm a man out of time. What do I stand for? What, you know, what, 
Is it that Captain America represents what is the American dream or beyond that? You know, what does Cap stand for? And a lot of what I understand of Cap comes from Steve Englehart, whose classic run on the character just is one of my favorite runs of comics of all time. And he, you know, the nomad stuff, the Captain America no more, the secret empire, he just totally got Cap. And then Stern and Byrne, when they came, you know, Roger Stern and John Byrne, when they did their run, I think Roger Stern has a great take on Captain America. And he's the one who really pointed out to, to me as a fan that, you know, Cap was essentially a New Deal Democrat. That's what he would have been in 1941. He would have been, which would have been, which would be Republican today, or at least moderate Republican today. But uh, New Deal Democrat being, you know, believing in social programs, believing in FDR, believing in, in the WPA, believing in mm-hmm. government helping people and not struggling for a small government so much as just making sure the government we have is providing for all people, not just the rich. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's the, the bedrock of my understanding of CAP. So in, in talking about CAP going into when you first started with the series, um, and you had been working with DC for about five years at this point, um, doing titles like Flash and, and Justice League, uh, and you come to Marvel, you write a, a four-issue miniseries for Deadpool, um, mm-hmm. But then you get your first ongoing series with Marvel, which is Captain America. And when you and Ron Garney took on the series with issue 444, uh, for many of us longtime Cap fans, it was it was like a breath of fresh air. Um, Thank you. We we loved Mark Grunewald and sure. respect his longtime love of the character. Absolutely. Um, but after 10 years, you know, it was it was time for a change. And yeah. What was it like following Mark's 10 year run? Was that was that intimidating at all? It, it was. I mean, 10 years. But the good thing about Mark, the great thing about Mark was he was uh, a team player. He was he cared about the character more than he had an ego about his own work. And Mark was incredibly receptive and passed on to me all his notes, all his research and stuff that just because he thought I should have it. Uh, and because he knew, he knew, I, he knew I loved the character, maybe in a different way, in a different point of view. But, you know, we both shared that love for the character. And so it was it was intimidating, but not as intimidating as it would have been if the transition had not been smooth, you know? Yeah, we've we've heard nothing but great things about nice. Mark. He, we, was, he was the best. Yeah, we had uh, we've had Catherine on here. Uh, to talk uh, about about him uh, intimately, but also many of the um, uh, different people who have worked with him over the years. Nothing but great things to say about him. So that doesn't surprise me that he was so helpful in, in your transition. Yeah, uh, we, we've also had Ron Garney on the show, Mark, and, uh, and and he said that you were great about asking him what he wanted to draw, yeah. and, and including his ideas uh, in your ideas for the stories. Is that, yeah. is that typically the way you like to work uh, involving the artist in the development of the stories? Absolutely. It's a collaborative medium. I can't do what they do. And ideally they can't do what I do. So the artists. So if we're on the same page, figuratively and literally speaking, and working together, I always say that it's my story until such time as I hand it over to the artist, at which point it becomes our story. And I am, very, very mindful of the fact that something that takes me three or four days to write takes them a month to draw. And they're sitting and staring at every page for eight hours at a time. So any thoughts, any ideas, you know, I want to make, you know, you gotta, it's like any partnership, you 
going to get your best results if that person is happy and that person feels creatively fulfilled. And so, you know, I'm not a short order cook. It's not like I say, you know, give me a list of five things you want in a story and I'll put them in. It's just more, you know, what do you, what are you drawn to? Not just something you want to draw, but also like what kind of stories do you like to tell? What kind of stories do you like to read? What kind of work do you really enjoy? What is it about the characters that really excites you? And that's key. I mean, if you're not doing that, then it's the, the, the final result is kind of disjointed a lot of times. And you've got a writer who's working in one direction, an artist who's sort of pulling in another direction. And it, the, you know, the fishers kind of show. Yeah, he, he brought up some good examples of when you asked him those questions and, and talked about, you know, how he really enjoyed doing a kind of like a, an espionage thriller type. And, and that kind of took in the direction of your first story. Yeah. Um, and so and listen, it seems like every cap writer wants to do a Red Skull story before the run is over. Uh, right. And here you are kicking off your run with with the Cap's arch enemy uh, and a fun cosmic cube story. Uh, more importantly, though, for me, I, you brought Sharon Carter back yeah. and, and, and who was presumed dead since issue 233, which was, was like 16 years prior. Right. What was it about Sharon Carter that intrigued you and wanted to bring her back? Well, in part, it was because she had the stupidest death possible. I mean, she had an, she was off camera, she had, <laughs> she had off camera. Captain America is seeing videotape of what looks like Sharon dying. And even in that you know, even in the 80s, you would be smart enough to think I'm dealing with S.H.I.E.L.D. You know, maybe maybe the videotape is not exactly the, the ironclad evidence that I want because um, they're good at manipulating stuff. It just it just so rang so hollow. And it was it was done also on top of that, it was done by one of like nine Captain America writers in a row who worked on one issue apart because, right. you know, Eve a piece. And, and the, it was basically these people just taking a Captain America run. Uh, I'm going to do it forever. And then they do an issue and a half and they got something else shiny catches their eye and they hand it off to Peter Gillis or whoever. Um, so it's not like it was done with much aforethought. You know, it's not like it was done with by much, much by design. It really very much reads like, well, geez, I guess we haven't had Sharon in these stories for a few issues. We probably should account for that. So I just think, First off, she was in some of the earliest Captain America stories I ever read, which would be, I, can't, I think I sampled Captain America 100 and didn't come back for a while because I was a DC boy and I'm a Marvel boy. But that, you know, I, I like Sharon. Uh, she seemed competent. You know, she had her own identity. She wasn't just, uh, you know, a, a, a foil or a girlfriend or whatever that, you know, she had, to, she had her own agency. And so when the idea came about to bring her back in a way that made her different, I mean, really gave her contrast to Cap and gave Captain America somebody to talk, A, to talk to and B, to argue with, I thought that was just comedy gold and also really good for dramatic tension. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many times did they say to each other, uh, no, she's not my girlfriend. He's not my boyfriend. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was, it was good. Definitely good comedy there. Um, and then of course, in that first story, uh, we, we covered it here on the podcast cause we also cover the comics too. And I, I do recall, uh, there was a time I said to Bob, Oh my God, 
if any woman ever looks at you the way she's looking at him right now, you're a dead man. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a, a great way to bring her back. She wasn't just some, you know, uh, back then when she was written to be some sort of kind of secondary character that was really just an eye candy. Right. And I also did that with knowing what the, the backstory was going to be, which we didn't get to for 10 issues. But because, I, you know, it, it's such a it's such a cliche and such a trope for the for the angry girlfriend to show up with no real reason to be angry. She's just a bitch. And that's terrible. And it's 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 sloppy, easy writing because this idea that she genuinely believes that Shield and to some degree Steve hung her out to dry back in the day is, and didn't even bother to look for her. That's what's motivating a lot of this anger. And so that I felt I felt better about writing the character that way because I knew there was a an engine to that. So you you finish Operation Rebirth and you go on to write Man Without a Country, uh, right. which earns a, an Eisner Award nominee for best serialized story. And and you and Ron, you're hitting your stride, mm-hmm. and then it all ends with 454. <laughs> So yep. Marvel could relaunch with the Heroes Reborn volume with Rob Liefeld. When we asked Ron about it, he said, you know, he wasn't outraged. Uh, he understood it was a business side of the decision. Um, he said he was pleasantly surprised about the fan outrage. Yes. How did you take all this? I Much the same. I mean, it's a business and and it's it was a shame. And I would, I, you know, I was miffed just because we didn't, they knew before we came on, like Marvel knew before we even started that our our run was going to be limited, but nobody passes along to us. And I understand why they couldn't. It's, you know, it's a business deal and there's all kinds of stuff happening behind the scenes, but still it sort of felt like, holy smokes, you're just yanking the rug just when we're getting started. Uh, so it didn't feel great, but I, I wasn't like steaming angry. Uh, to Marvel's credit, they called up Rob and they said, you know, you are looking for a somebody to do the dialogue on your book, it would be a nice peace offering if you, if you invited Mark to join you on, on your book. And Rob called me, he was all excited. And he sent me, I said, well, send me a plot and send me some pages. And I got the plot and I got the pages. And I so realized we were just not even on the same planet in terms of our perception of the character. I'm not judging his, I'm not judging mine. I'm just saying we were so far apart that I just couldn't, I wasn't even remotely interested. Right. So Jeff Loeb comes on. Right. So when, when you left Cap, you were putting out about four to five books a month, still working for DC, yep. taking on some other Marvel titles. You were working on Kingdom Come with Alex Ross. Right. You added some Valiant titles to the mix. Yeah. And after nearly a year and a half, you're back uh, with the character and launching a new Cap series with your old partner, Ron Garney. Yeah. What brought you back? we weren't done. <laughs> we, we weren't done. Um, Kirk, you not, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Tom Grevorth, the executive editor called me with the news and that the, all four of the Marvel books that had gone over to Wildstorm were coming back and gave me sort of my choice of what I wanted to do. Uh, and there's another book I could have picked up as well, but I didn't think that was the way to go. But Captain America was interesting to me, which is dangerous because the, it, it meant that people were going to compare us with our past work. And it meant that people can compare us with their nostalgia for their past, for our past work, even though it was a year, only a year old. So it was a gamble that the downside to doing it was that the first run, nobody in editorial cared. 
like, just do what you want. You know, you're, we're busy doing this other stuff. But when we came back, uh, we, the editorial interference was just sky high. I know I had to rewrite that first issue something like four times. And I didn't want Lady Deathstrike to be the villain. Who cares about Lady Deathstrike? But all kind of, you know, everybody's, suddenly everybody's an expert, right? Suddenly everybody knows what it's going to take to write a successful Captain America comic, not just me. So I got a lot of help. Um, not the editor of, of record. And the editor of record was Matt Idelson. He was great, but there's a lot of cooks in the, you know, at that, at that pot. Um, but we, you know, we got rolling. Uh, the reason we did the thing with the shield is twofold. We, well, let me rephrase. If you think about it, all four of the books that came back, Iron Man, Fantastic Four, Avengers, and Cap, right? All four of them needed some visual something to sort of send a shot across the ballot. This is new. Right. This is this is a new thing. So Iron Man gets his new armor. Avengers gets a new lineup. Fantastic Four gets new costumes. There's not much we can do with Cap. Right. Right. So that's what led to the idea of losing the shield. And that was what led to that way. We got the triangular shield out of it for a while. And that sort of appeased my corporate masters by saying, look, I'm playing along. He's got something new, too. Yeah. You know, it's funny. um, Ron mentioned talking about. Well, I guess what you're saying about some of the uh, editorial direction, right? Um, Ron mentioned your first instinct for the new series was to place Cap on a bullet train, acting like the Heroes Reborn volume never existed and start the story by saying, now back to our story. Pretty much, uh, yeah. And, and I guess editorial was like, no. Well, I mean, it wasn't that blatant. It, wasn't, it was more, it, it, like I said, it had more to do with the fact that it's you know, Lady Deathstrike was just sort of like that. We read, they really wanted Lady Deathstrike in there. So that was an issue. Um, And, but I did my best. Um, It's also, it was the beginning of what became the thing. I don't want to jump ahead, but the kind of thing that made me eventually leave the book and to this day sort of makes it difficult to write, which is, I believe that the book, by its nature is political, not overtly political. It's not, you know, we're not debating the, the, the crises of the days per se. It's all done in allegory, but still, if it's, if the book has to be about America, um, which you would think would be obvious, but I was told by the powers that be that, and this is a direct quote, and it's the stupidest thing that was ever said to me in comics. Captain America doesn't have to be about America. Spider-Man's not about spiders. <laughs> which is going to be on my fucking tombstone. Um, And, and so it, it, that was sort of the beginning of, okay, I want to push the boundaries a little bit. I'm not trying to do anything disrespectful. I'm not trying to inject specifically liberal or specifically conservative issues into the comics. It's more just you're dealing with America and it, that became sort of an untenable situation as I went on. So yeah, and we definitely want to get to that um, and talk a little bit about that. Uh, just, I guess, finishing up a little bit here on, on your volume three run. Um, after five issues, there was an artist shakeup and they pull Ron off the book to give it to Andy Kubert. Yeah. How, how did that come about and, and what were your thoughts at the time? I thought it was a good idea because not because we were punishing Ron. It was because 
Ron, through no fault of his own, I mean, because, I think because of the circumstances by which the books came back and the timing of everything, I think Ron started behind the eight ball deadline wise anyway, and was always having to race to, to get stuff done. And so the idea was, well, let's give him a new number one, which is a step up. I mean, you know, it was, it was supposed to be a, you know, perceived as a reward. Uh, and so we give you a new number one, we'll bring somebody on the book uh, and give them a little bit of lead time. And then we get two great Captain America, two great looking Captain America books out of this. And that was, that was the goal. That was the plan. Uh, and as we discussed earlier, you, you launched your cap career in volume one with a red skull story. Then you ended your volume three, one with one as well. And by the way, it's, it's very similar to JM Day Mateus. He did the same thing. He began his run yeah. with cap and then with cap. Um, and by the way, story was excellently crafted. Um, it starts off with a Red Skull origin tale, has a return from your original story stronger than ever, uh, but then takes a 180 degree turn and becomes a Korvac story. <laughs> yeah. Then it yeah. circles back to say, no, this is really a Red Skull story. Yeah. Uh, so I have a few questions about it. I have many answers. Go ahead. Okay. Regarding the origin issue, uh, yeah. which beautifully depicted by Andy Kubert, full splashes on every page. You, you requested to have your, your name taken off the credits for issue 14 due to editorial inter interference. Yeah. Can you take us through what happened? Yeah. I mean, again, I don't want this to sound like it's a big Marvel gripe session. I mean, again, Marvel's been good to me and I've had great relationships with everybody there, but there are circumstances. And this is one where we plotted that story, Andy Kubert and uh, you know, Chris Iliopoulos, I think, was there too, the, the letter and... You know, and, and I was there, Matt Allison, we were out to lunch and we started talking about the story and we wanted it to be powerful because it's told from the Red Skull's point of view about his origins, about his upbringing. Andy was the one who said, let's make it all full page splashes and let's do spot color where the Red Skull's Red Skull is the only thing that's colored on the page. It was a great idea. But what frustrated me <clears throat> was that we knew this would be sort of a a pushing the envelope kind of story, telling it from the villain's point of view. So we got it okayed at every single step. <clears throat> I was incredibly paranoid that this was going to be yanked out from under us at some point. So we made sure at every stage of production, penciling, lettering, coloring, everything that we got sign-offs and everything was great. And I got a call on a Monday morning from I don't remember exactly, I, I remember who, but I don't want to put names to the names, sure. who apologetically said, well, I have some news. Uh, on Friday, it was decided that the book was too powerful and too, there was just too, it was too edgy. So we had, and again, I won't name him, we had a writer come in over the weekend and completely rewrite the thing and throw out pages and just completely change the ending and, and so forth and so on, you know, I'm sorry. And I said, I'm even more sorry. And I, this is not my work anymore. I'm not being petulant. It's just, I don't want my name on something that's not mine. And so they were, there was time to take it off the credits inside the book. The cover had already been printed. So that's why my name's on the cover. But the good news is cooler heads prevailed at some point a few years later and the original issue as intended was run as a special feature in one of the trade paperbacks 
Yeah, and I think it's also the the version is the one that's on Marvel Unlimited too. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I, I know we, that, I know what things to look for, so I'll go check after this. That's interesting. Yeah, I actually I, I took that version and I took my my hard copy and I compared mm-hmm. the two, and there are certainly some pages that were missing in the hard copy that were in the digital. There were some, some copies. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I can't say it's a hundred percent, but it was right. definitely different. Now that's really nice to hear. <laughs> finally, victory after 20 years. Awesome. <laughs> well, glad it finally came around. Uh, yeah. And, and so, so going back to the story, you know, Cap's faced with the choice. Uh, kill the Red Skull mm-hmm. or allow him to destroy civilization as we know it. Right. And he continuously talks about that killing is not an option. Right. But when he sees no other choice, he mm-hmm. kills the skull. and. Right. This seems to go against everything Steve stands for. Right. What was your intent in having Cap commit this action? Remember what happens next. Everything gets worse. Everything gets worse. He's back into a corner in a moment of weakness. He takes this choice. And then the result of it is, oh, my God, things are so much worse now. And so that was really it. I wanted, and then he gets another chance at redemption and you know, facing the same choice you know, after everything goes all crazy. And it's the, the only thing interesting that you can do with these characters is have them make interesting choices, right? Uh, it's hard because you know what these characters are going to do in most circumstances. Everybody knows what Superman is going to do if somebody's fallen off a building. Everybody knows what Spider-Man is going to do if the shocker shows up or whatever. It's a, and you're constantly as a writer uh, being reminded that you, you never write a story that the audience could write for you without your help. So the cure to that is to have characters make unexpected decisions and it's fun and it's good storytelling. And I think it's compelling. And that had as much to do with what can we do to have Cap make a decision that absolutely seems completely wrongheaded for him. And it goes horribly wrong. I, you also, I mean, I'm backing into it, but, and maybe you're going to, maybe this was your next question, but you do kind of have to reconcile this. I'm not going to kill with a guy who ran around with a Tommy gun in world war II shooting Nazis. It, it, it's not, you know, it's difficult to re- reconcile, right? What's the difference, but you know, the difference is it's, it's just, it's part of the superhero code. You just don't, superheroes don't kill. It just, it's, it's easy. It's cheap and it's easy storytelling, right? Yeah, I, I agree. And I will say we, when we get to man out of time, we want to talk about that. Sure. Yeah. So one of my favorite uh, cap series is the 12 issue Captain America Sentinel of Liberty um, that ran from September 98 to the following August. And, and I know yeah. you wrote 10 of those issues. Yeah. And in issue two, in the Sentences of Liberty, they explain what the purpose of this series was, uh, was, which was to sort of explore the stories between the stories. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, I mean, that that's amazing, right? And one of them, for example, was what happened between uh, issues 139 and 144 of, of, of volume one of Captain America. So it's it's got Sam Wilson and, and, and Cap. Um, it's such a creative... And Sam wearing the, the Cap costume right. for the first time. Exactly. Right. It's such a creative um, sort of take. Right. I mean, it's so original. Uh, 
which is one of the reasons it's one of my favorites. But what sort of what what was the germ of that idea for that sort of perspective? Well, I, we didn't want to do a second book where we had to worry about the continuity of the first book and making everything mesh. That was really it. What so what other time period or what other situation can we we do? And I didn't want to tell World War II stories endlessly because just that's not my favorite period of time. I'm not a World War II buff. So what can we do? And the idea, I don't remember whose it was. It may have been Matt, Matt Adelson's, the editors, to just go, let's bop, let's bop around and cap history. Well, I mean, it's it's great. I'd love to see more of that, quite frankly, because there's, there's so much there to plumb, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and we re- we recently covered the the two part story, uh, Central Livery Eight and Nine, where Sam puts on the the cap uniform. Um, and I'm glad you said this was the first time because this was done back in 1999. But obviously, the story took place, you know earlier than 1999 um you know what was the reaction at that time of seeing sam in the captain america uniform was it that was there a reaction i not that i recall which i think speaks better of those times than of today i well i think you're right that's true that's true So, uh, you know, Rick and I were we were talking, uh, I think, just last week about um, how important sort of developmental arcs are for some characters. And particularly, mm-hmm. we were talking about the, the cinematic universe side of, right. of Marvel and particularly over the last phases of, of, of the Marvel movies and how different characters have had different deve- developmental arcs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but we were also talking about how like that's almost impossible to do, at least to find a to a resolution to the arc in comics, because you have to keep it going. Right. So how do you how do you do that? How do you balance, you know, having a character evolve rather than always stay the same and yet leave room for future development? It is hard. It it is tricky. As you said, that's you know, this is people call it comic book characters and superheroes, uh, modern mythology. And the one caveat I have to that is that. No, myths have an ending. You know, mm. King Arthur surrenders Excalibur. Robin Hood shoots the arrow into the air and lands where he's going to be buried. But you can't do that with these characters. Uh, they've got to keep in act. They've got to be in act two all the time. Mm. So it is hard. I mean, the only thing you can really do is, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know what you do for development. You, you know, you have every once in a while you can do one, like, you know, with Flash and the return of Barry Allen where, you know, the flat barrier where Wally West is clearly one kind of man at the beginning of that story and a, and a different kind of man at the other. But I don't think you can keep doing Return of Barry Allen every month. You know, I don't likewise, I don't think you can keep doing Secret Empire and Nomad every month. I just mm-hmm. I don't know if you can figure it out. Let me know. <laughs> well, I, I think you're the expert here. But uh, so we'll, we'll fast forward 10 years um, to issue 600. Yeah, And uh, there's a short story, The Persistence of Memorabilia, uh, and it, 600 was a special commemorative issue uh, focusing mm-hmm. on the one year after Steve Rogers' death. And, and uh, here it is 10 years later, you come back, you write this short story uh, about a collection of cap memorabilia being auctioned off. Um, and it, it involves characters with opposing viewpoints post-Civil War, some mm-hmm. seeing Cap as a hero, others a criminal to have his name tarnished. What inspired you to write the story? And What's your memorabilia collection like? Oh, it is something. Um, I, I see this is what you get for being audio and not video. You don't get all the good stuff on the camera, <laughs> but um, it's it's pretty extensive. I mean, it, it's it 
at times it has been different, but I have reached a point at which now I have a gigantic 12 by 12 storage unit somewhere with all the crap I can't fit in my otherwise large apartment anyway. So it's, it's fun. I mean, I don't have like every single Captain America toy I've ever seen. I like to have the stuff. I like the big stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of uh, like comics accurate stuff. I made my own shield when I was, you know, 14. Oh, wow. And, you know, and over the years, I, and I finally, you know, 20 years ago, I guess I found somebody who could actually make a really awesome, like perfect one. And then Marvel started coming out with their own a few years ago. And so the house is pretty lousy with shields, actually. Uh, <laughs> between all the batterings and all the shields, I think I'm pretty well protected. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so there's that. Um, and I think that that probably was, I don't really specifically remember the genesis of that story, but I would be willing to bet it had something to do with my own nostalgic attachment to, to these kind of knickknacks and memorabilia and what they evoke in me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're, so, you're talking to guys living yeah. in man caves right, right. now. So yeah. 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 <laughs> So uh, one of one of the favorites of, of Rick and myself is the five issue Man Out of Time uh, miniseries. Um, but before we get into it, um, was this the story you wanted to do or were you approached by Marvel um, because perhaps they wanted a, another some, like a cap story like that because the first Avenger movie was coming out? I, yeah, I know it didn't have anything to do with the movie. I, I can't remember. I know it arose in a conversation between me and Tom Brevoort. Uh, and I don't know whose idea it was, but that's often the case with Tom and I, we talk all the time and we come away with stuff and sometimes it's his idea and sometimes it's my idea, but there's something there. And he knows, I really enjoy playing with the past and playing with, as you, you know, as you said earlier, with Senna Liberty, like the untold stories, the, or the, as Tom puts it, dancing between the raindrops, right? The, the spaces that you didn't really see, but now you get a chance to explore, um, I love doing that. And it seemed appropriate to me in a post 9-11 world to maybe take a different look or a more an in-depth look really at what it's like to have woken up at the end of World War II and you, you awakened in what is now the 21st century, essentially. I played fast and loose with it because, you know, you don't want to nail down a specific year in, in Cap's history, but I think I did have some reference to Y2K at some point, so... Well, we actually, we talked with Tom and, yeah. uh, and we discussed this, uh, this series in particular and his conversations with you about it. And he said that uh, you have a certain way of, of working that, that seems to work for you. Um, and he described it as, I think, quote, uh, Mark likes to jump off the cliff and on the way down, figure out how he's going to survive. That's really it. That's um, really it. Right. And so in this series, the last issue tied into the first issue. So it all seemed like it was meticulously planned <laughs> yeah. out. Well, then bully for me, because that's, you know, that's me at the end of that story, desperately trying to find some way to, to polish it off. And I, I'm definitely right. I mean, I, my working method is to just almost every single time I write a cliffhanger ending, I don't have the slightest idea how to get out of it, because I figure if I don't know and you don't know, then you can't guess and we'll both be surprised. It'll be great. Um and it's the fun part of it for me. I, I thought it was a bug for many, many, many years. I just kind of come to accept the fact that, no, it's a feature. It's just something <laughs> I like. 
It's oh, we're going to use that phrase with my wife when she complains about trauma. <laughs> That's not. It's a feature. It's a feature. <laughs> and I'm a I'm a puzzle solver. I mean, I'm I'm the guy in the back of the classroom doing the crossword puzzles and and the you know brain teasers and stuff. And so I'm I'm a I'm a puzzle solver as it is. So I that's just another way of me exercising my brain in that direction. Uh, I, Grant Morrison and I had this great conversation once, and I think we came, we came to the mutual conclusion that we feel like we're making it up as we go, but our subconscious is often leading, like leaving breadcrumbs for us that we can find and pick up as we go and, and we'll pay off later. And it, that happens more often than you think. Oh. You know, we get yeah. to issue four and realize there's something in issue one that I set up for myself that I can now use here. That's that's intriguing, but also a little scary. It's a little scary. <laughs> if, 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 I mean, clearly, if, you know, if this were my third comic I was ever writing and I was making it up as I went, I'd be an idiot. But I've kind of gotten to the point now where it's just, all right, just type the words page one and go and see what happens. Right. Like a muscle. Yeah. Yeah. I, get, there's there's a level of craft beneath which I know I won't sink, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's my that's my safety net. So, so let's talk about that puzzle you solved in Out of Time. So the yeah. the the scenes where it became obvious Steve was seeing a lot of progress for women, yeah. minorities, and he showed growth as a character mm-hmm. as he was transitioning from the super soldier of the forties to the superhero of modern time. Well put. Was that your intent, like to demonstrate Steve going back home no longer felt right? And and, yeah. and this was growth as a character from when he was in World War II. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the genesis of the story really was, I mean, besides how it came to be, but in terms of specifically the story was that, and again, I want to say Tom made this observation, although it could have been either of us, that you know, in comics, we're constantly writing stories where our characters travel to the future and have an adventure and come back. And if you look at Captain America's resurrection through his eyes for the first time, which no one has ever done, then it's the same for him. It's just he, he, he's now in the future and, you know, surely there's a way back. It's, you know, but you've seen the world through his eyes as if he were a time traveler rather than just a guy who was on ice. Uh, made perfect sense to me and it gave me such more such room to explore his reactions to the, to the you know the, the problems of the day and the world of today and i am just of all the things i've done with cap i think i'm i'm inordinately proud of the scene where tony stark is taking him to you know this you know, the museum of air and space and stuff to show him all the things we've accomplished as as a, a country because that's how Tony would think it's he's thinking about the machines that we built and it, and it's when cap comes across Martin Luther King and his mm-hmm. speech that that's what really convinces him that, okay, we've, we've come somewhere, you know, we've, we are still a good nation. Yeah. And that, that was a hard hitting scene because, you know, cap asked, asked about that, right. You know, or Steve asked about that, you know, so this is common now. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, and then it was a beautiful scene when he, he's back in his time and he's at the baseball park and he's in the section and there's the, the, the black father and his son and talking with him. So yeah, it was wonderful to see growth from yeah. that character. Um, 
So fast forward to 2018, uh, sure. you're, you're back on the cap series as it's returning to the, the legacy numbering, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you issue 695 to 704. Now this is following the Nick Spencer Hydra cap story, which had faced some reader backlash. Um, right. And it seems like a pattern, Mark. You, you, you took over volume one when it was hitting a lull creatively and sales were down. You launched volume three after the Heroes Reborn story had disappointed. And now you're following Hydra, crap, Hydra Cap. It seems on your part. It was. It seems as if there's some rough seas with Cap. Marvel brings you in to settle the waters. <laughs> well, I, some of that's just because I'm smart enough to know, and this is no reflection on Nick. Okay, this is a more general statement, but I'm smart enough to know that you don't want to take over the book after Graham Morrison leaves. You know, you don't want to take over the book, whatever it is, after the after Tom King leaves, you know, you want to take it over, you know, when, you know, six fill-in writers in a row have run it into the ground. That's when you want to take it over. Um, with respect to Nick, I mean, I think Nick told a, a good story and a story that worked for him and made mm-hmm. sense and for him and, and awesome. Um, this was the, the, the remit from Tom and Marvel was just make him a superhero again and don't spend hardly any time dealing with the reformation of cap and American in the Americans eyes after, you know, the, the Hydra stuff, just because again, don't tell a story your audience can tell without your help. Like everybody knows what that story is. Captain America is eventually has to earn people's trust again. Well, again, you don't need me to tell you that story. You know, that story, let's move on. And not do a story about the previous story, right? You know, instead, do a story that you uh, that is now. We sort of we we touched on this a little bit earlier, but the following year, you were asked to write that short essay for Marvel Comics One Thousand. And I hesitate to make too much of the perception that we live in troubling times, right? Because every generation has troubling right. times, right? And um, but Cap has always been sort of a, a unifying figure we could rally around. And yet sometimes there can be passionate debates about what it means to be a patriotic hero. And, yeah. You know, and, and this we've revisited this time and time again in the Cap mythos and uh, uh, in, in different generations. And so, I, I mean, I read your draft essay. Um, yeah. And to me, it sounded like words that would come out of Cap's mouth. I, I couldn't agree more. And um you know, I know a lot of people don't like it when Captain America becomes overtly political, right? right. We, we talked about this earlier. And maybe that balance, I mean, a balance has to be struck for no other reason than you got to sell right. books, right? right but, sure. would, but would Cap even be Cap if he was apolitical? No, no. And when we say political, again, I want to underscore this, especially for people who didn't read the original essay. It's not, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. It's not, it's not even arguing the things that were really specifically, you know, Republican talking points or Democratic talking points. It was just more looking at the world around us as it exists today. And the realization as, as a writer, the out of comics, you know, reality realization that as a writer, it's, it's getting harder and harder to write Captain America mm-hmm. and do it in a way that is relevant because, you know, more and more, we are seeing that authority figures are not the authorities they ought to be. Uh, you know, more and more we're seeing, you know, reasons to not trust 
law keeping, you know, individuals. Not, I mean, again, not across the board, but here and there. And like it or not, there's a huge contingency of Americans who are look at cops as at best, you know, uh, something they should be scared of, and at worst, as villains. And you don't have to subscribe to that thought, but you need to acknowledge it that that there are people who believe that, and there's a lot of them. And so it's harder, like I said, it just becomes more difficult to figure out, okay, what, what do you say in a Captain America story that doesn't make him sound like, you know, your granddad and doesn't make him sound like he's completely out of touch with what's happening in this country today. Right. So yeah. I felt very strongly that this was the chance to do that. I thought mm-hmm. that this was, and I worked very, very hard on that essay to make it you know, um, nonpartisan. I think that's the word. It was political, but it was nonpartisan. Right. And at the last second, yeah, I was, I got the call as the book was literally on the press. I mean, this is, this sounds like a, a, a bad story, but it's true. Literally the book was on the press mm. and they called me. They said, we, we had to pull it. You have to write another one right now. And, or we just gonna have to leave the page out. And it wasn't, I mean, they were, again, it was, it was a very apologetic call. It was like, look, you know, this is above, this is coming from above, but you got, we got to do this. And so I thought about it and I was pissed for a second, but I did what I needed to do and write, wrote another reasonably toothless essay that was the best I could do at telling something that had some profundity to it without sounding too corny. It's okay. But the original essay is much better. I actually have the original essay that original page because it was done I mean, it went to the printer uh oh. had that page blown up and framed in my house yeah i have that with the essay included yeah oh wow oh, that's cool yeah, wow. yeah. This, is, this is uh the original by john cassidy holy smoke good for you that's amazing yeah it's, it's a beautiful image but uh it would be better if your if your words are on it but it is a, it's a beautiful <laughs> it image yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I yeah. said. That's why my that's why my blog has the essay on it. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, that's 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 great. It is getting harder and harder. I think you're right to yeah. um, you know for Cap to 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 sort of speak his mind. The um, only reason I took it on again with six ninety five is because Chris wanted to do it, and I knew that Chris was my safety net. Even if people thought the stories were crap, they would love Chris as Captain America. So. That was my safety net. If it hadn't been for Chris, I never would have come back. And I have no intention of ever writing Captain America for other than maybe a story here or there as I go. But I I would never want to take the series because, again, it's, you know, Disney is a different master than Marvel Comics was 20 years ago. And there are just so many more landmines that you have to navigate uh, with a a character that is inherently political. And uh, you know, I, Ta-Nehisi Coates did a great job with it. I was, uh, you know, I was very pleased to see Ta-Nehisi get the book. I mean, it was awesome to finally see a black man, you know, write the main Captain America book, uh, you know, for an extended length of time. And I thought he had some good things to say. So that probably leads well into the next question. You know, is there another writer that, that for you just seems to capture the essence of Captain America better than most? Um, that's a good question. I mean, among the I mean, among the current crowd, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah, Steve Englehart. Um, but that doesn't count. I mean, again, I, Englehart, Grunewald, you know, Stan, obviously, but 
but in terms of more modern writers, uh, ta does, I really think. Uh, I think Kurt Busiek gets it. Um, and this is not to denigrate anybody else who's been on the book. I think, you know, Ed, Ed Brubaker, does, Ed Brubaker's vision is completely different than my own vision, but that just make it a bad vision. I think he, he's told some really good Captain America stories. Is there anybody that you'd love to see uh, write Cap that hasn't written Cap? That's a good question. I mean, I, I, my, my first instinct is to say Tom King, and my second instinct is to say, but don't screw it up, Tom. Um, <laughs> not that he would, but you know, you you know, you're running a risk with Tom when you give him a character because you know it'll be a yeah. great story, but how broken is that character when he's done? So. <laughs> right. That's that'd be my only fear. But I again, I say it with all respect to Tom. I really like Tom's work. And anybody who's not reading Human Target right now is missing a bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've been you've been through and you've seen a lot in the comic market from the mm-hmm. from the 90s expansion and implosion to Marvel's bankruptcy to the influx of screenwriters and novelists becoming comic writers uh, to the new interest due to the MCU and pop culture. What do you think the state of the comic industry is now and, and where is it headed? It's the good news is no matter what you might hear from critics online who don't know and don't have any insight in the industry, the industry is doing well. It's just going through a paradigm shift. We are moving away from monthly books. We just are. It's, that's just the reality. And with each passing year, Periodic, you know, the monthly comics sell fewer copies and the trade paperbacks sell more copies because the audience has just sort of decided on a global level that that is what they lean toward. And it mirrors what's happening in the world, especially because of the pandemic, right? It's that, mm-hmm. you know, now we binge everything. Now, now when you find some cool series on Netflix, I don't know about you, but I get pissed when I find out, wait, I have to wait for episodes. This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's how we consume stuff now. And also, and it's also just easier for casual readers to read it because it's all of a piece. It's not, you know, you're, it's not sampling one episode of a TV show in the middle of a run. This is no, here's a story that has a beginning, a middle and an end. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're moving that way. I think that's the, the other thing that I think is, is strong. And again, you will hear very, you'll hear a lot of internet pushback against it, but there is a growing diversity, both with the characters and with the creators. And that's the biggest paradigm shift I've seen in my like almost 40 years of doing this. And I'm thrilled. Um, you know, when I started in comics, there was, there was like two female editors at DC comics and no female writers and maybe two female artists. Uh, and all as white as the, as white as the, the sands of, Iwo Jima, whatever. I know that very, very white, very white. Um, And it, it, it took longer than it ought to take. And that's our fault, but it's an interesting, I think, and this is in no way to make any excuses. It's, it's, it should have happened a long time ago, but I think what happened was the mistake we made as an industry when we really started to want to embrace diversity. Finally, is that, you know, we threw open the doors and we're like, okay, great. You know, Marvel and DC, you know, we're looking for all kinds of creators, whether, you know, not just white guys. And we expected there'd be a line around the block of people wanting to get in. And there wasn't. And that's not 
on them. That's on the fact that what we have, what up to that point, we had been producing for 40 years, you know, 50 years was comics specifically targeted for white men. Right. Why would you expect there to be this outrageously huge audience of black and Latino artists who can't wait to, to dive in at Marvel or DC? It's like, you know, again, it's, it's like if, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's like, I don't, I, if the romance industry suddenly threw up, it's threw open its doors and said, we're looking for new romance writers. Well, I don't, I was never the audience. I don't know. So it's, it's gone slowly. It's gone more slowly than it ought to have by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Cause we're stupid, you know, and we're just, you know, we're endemic to the rest of the world. We just don't, or rest of America, we don't pay attention to casual racism, but it's, we're getting better. And I, and there's always a, a room to grow, but I am really pleased with what I have seen. I mean, with the caveat, there is a long way to go. I think that the more voices you have in, in these characters, in these, in these comics, the different points of view, the better everything's going to be. I mean, the better these, yes, you're going to have some real crap stories too, but you're also going to have some amazing stories that come at you from a point of view you didn't even think about before. That's yeah, a the, very long answer to your question, but yeah. No, it's a great answer. And we yeah. appreciate the perspective. I, I think Bob and I agree. And, and a lot of our listeners do too, as well. A lot um, of your listeners don't, but yes. Yeah, yeah just true. Listen, yeah. you know, yeah. we have a, we have a Facebook group with over 4,000 Captain America fans in there. Yeah. And, you know, every one of them is a true Captain America fan in their own way. And in their have own a vision. Right. You know, right. some some love the super soldier, some love right. the superhero, some more moderate, some are more left, some are more right. right. But 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 I think, you know, for for a lot of the listeners that we hear back uh, feedback from, um, mm -hmm. you know, what you just described is part of that breath of fresh air that we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a few questions from our listeners. Um, sure. And speaking of of uh, women in, in the workplace uh, and uh -huh. some some advancement. Um, one of our listeners, James Foley, uh, he says, he writes, one of my favorite issues of your run was Cap Volume 3, Issue 2, mm -hmm. uh, as a retired submariner who was mm -hmm. on a boat at the time, back in 1998. What thought process, if any, was it to make the supporting character, the, the XO, a woman? Mm -hmm. At the time, it was a discussion in the Navy, but women didn't start serving until 2010. Right. My curiosity is, was it a statement or just part of the plot or, or not even considered? It, to be honest, it wasn't even considered. It was, why can't this character be a woman? I, had I actually known that there weren't women CEOs on submarines at the time, I probably would have not made it a woman, but I'm glad I did. Going back, I'm glad ignorance paid off in this case. Yeah, I mean, it was prescient, actually. There you go. Right. Let's look at yeah. that one. Yeah, right. <laughs> so we I'm also, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Mark. No, I was going to say I are a genius. That's all. I, I'd be a writer. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> so we also have a question from Grant Baugh. And I know we've talked about Man of, Out of Time uh, already, mm -hmm. but he wants to know what were your main goals and inspiration when revamping Cap's revival into the modern day? My biggest goal was trying to figure out why this guy who knows that, Cap, that, that uh, Mr. Fantastic has a goddamn time machine <laughs> doesn't say, okay, I've had my fun in the future. Now I got to go back to where I came from. Mm -hmm. Right. That was my, that was my okay. biggest goal. And I think I paid that off because yeah. the only read, the only re for those who don't know, 
you read the story, the only reason that makes any sense to me whatsoever and uniquely to Captain America is that the president of the United States asks him not to because he's afraid of what will happen to, you know, to time and history if Cap goes back knowing what he knows now. Mm-hmm. And only a direct order from the president of the United States is the kind of thing that would stop Steve from doing that. And no other comic book character that I can think of would be that, you know, be that way. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, Chris Norton writes um, in volume three, number 17, you forced cap into an extreme situation where he felt he had no choice, but to kill the red skull. Then you show that his first instinct not to kill was the right choice since killing the skull gave him the power to, to Korvac. More recently, in issue 700, uh, talking about Chris Samney, um, right. the wings drawn on Cap's head look like doves. How, however, you put Cap in a situation where he goes back in time to prevent a war by killing an entire sub of people. Can you elaborate on your current thinking regarding traditional superheroes and killing, especially moral exemplars like Cap? Sure. Um... I remember I wrestled with this in the story and I'm not sure it was as cut and dry as that. My, my recollection, I, I could be misreading. I could be misremembering how I wrote that story, but my memory is it wasn't as cut and dry as Cap has to go back in time and kill a bunch of people in a submarine. Um, I could be wrong, but either way, I, I, we get back to the fact that, and we talked a little bit about this already. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying superheroes don't kill because I'm a aficionado of times gone by and nostalgic, you know, freak of nature who loves comics of the 60s. It's not that. It's that it's just, you know, every religion through history has had um, the one fundamental uh, tenet to it that stretches across every single religion in the, in the history of humanity, and this is absolutely true, no other, no other tenet stretches across all religions. No. And the tenet is, do unto others. That's the tenet. Do unto others as they would have, you know, the golden rule is, is somewhere in every religion. There's a reason for that. I mean, you know, there must be a reason for that if it's been that, that prevalent in human society. It just, it, it makes you you can get into all kind of adult serious complex debates as an adult about whether or not these characters should kill or justifiable reasons or this or that or whatever but i get back to the fact that knowing that killing somebody is bad is something that you know when you're four years old you know and these characters were not created to bear the burden of that level of complexity of philosophy. They just weren't. Um, they were built to entertain kids. And doesn't mean you can't tell adult stories with them. I'm just saying they were built to entertain adolescents and they were built to be moral exemplars. And anytime you want to add stuff onto that to, to run that character through a trial, you know, to, to, to really put that belief to the test, 
I think the character can bear up under a test like that. But I don't think that it, I don't think that it's fair and makes much sense to try to impose. Am I making any sense that that mm -hmm. that, that you know real like soul searching deep meaning of life? Do you kill? Do you not kill? There are reasons sometimes. It's you know and so forth and so on. I just I don't think the characters built for it. Mm -hmm. I think there's yeah. other. It, it's it's like it's like trying to you know I don't know I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna Maybe go a ahead. novel. It's yeah. not yeah it, it, it's these characters are not built for that. That's all I can say. Yeah. No, I have one last reader submitted question for you. And I know it's going to sound like a, a trip or a, a trip up or a trap or something okay. like that. It's not a trap. But Joshua Van Dyne wants to know which character was more fun to write. And I think we, I hope we know the answer to this. Captain yeah. America or Flash? Wow. <laughs> I, I, I say Flash was more fun to write. It doesn't mean I had a, it doesn't mean that the overall experience was any more fun. It just means the character itself was just easier to crack and easier to, to get a voice for, you know, cause it's, I just basically just put my own voice on it. That's mm -hmm. Wally is me. So writing that character was just getting out of bed. Whereas with cap to really think about it and really come at it from the po point of view, I've never been a soldier. I have no idea what that's like. I wasn't born in 1927. I don't know. 1922, I guess officially 1922. Um, so I don't know. So I will, I will say this. And again, you know, I know I said, cut me off in an hour and now I'm going long. I don't care. Um, the one thing we didn't talk about or didn't get a chance to talk about is me. What came out of the Chris Somni run, what my takeaway from the Chris Somni run was. Uh, and it was cracking the code on what Captain America actually stands for. And it's not the Declaration of Independence. And it is not the Constitution. It's the Bill of Rights. That to me is, and I, it, I can't believe it took me 25 years to figure it out, but I, I genuinely believe that's what Captain America's entire philosophy of being a hero, being a champion of people is built on the, the it's built on the Bill of Rights. And knowing that, gave me a, an insight into camp that I never had before and, and made, I think for a better story, knowing that. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I, I think, uh, you know, you, your, your runs on Captain America are, have been uh, beloved by many, many Captain America fans. Um, and certainly the, this last one that you had done. Um, interesting that you're saying you finally cracked the code. Yeah, my final one. Yes. <laughs> you, yeah. You've made that clear. Yeah. So which yeah. much to our, uh, you know, Chagrin. disappointment. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, I, you say that now, you don't know what I would do next. So <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, so what are you doing next? What's keeping you busy? I am busy as can be. I am I spending a lot of different plates. Uh, the day job that I'm very much enjoying and very excited about is I'm the publisher of Humanoids, which is a European publisher. They did the Incal, which is one of the best-selling science fiction graphic novels of all time. A lot of stuff with Alejandro Jodorowsky, but a lot of other, you know, stuff of, you know, biographical kid stuff, you know, science fiction adventure. Uh, they've been heavily re respected in Europe for, you know, 40 years plus. Uh, and being a part of that has been a blast because it's forcing me to look at comics in a different way, right? It's forcing me to uh, absorb different 
sorts of storytelling and different approaches to storytelling because I'm, I'm reading all of the European books and looking at them with an eye towards, is this something the American audience would respond to? Is this something we should reprint over here? Um, so the exposure to that is great. And it just feels good to be able to do things on that level. Like I, we are doing, uh, just by pure coincidence, uh, one of the books we have coming up in the next few weeks is a book about uh, Makhno, who was uh, the great Ukrainian freedom fighter mm-hmm. of history. It's a biography of that guy. And, you know, now we are, I am able to say, all right, we're going to give a portion of the proceeds of this to this Ukrainian charity or that Ukrainian, you know, uh, nonprofit, which is not something I could do as writer, but that's something I can do as a publisher. And I feel good about that. Uh, so that's the day job. And then, you know, at nights and weekends and whenever my girlfriend just never sees me, uh, I am writing Superman, Batman, World's Finest for DC Comics which the first issue will have come out by now. Uh, and we're doing that with artist Dan Moore and having a ball, just, you know, my dream of finally writing Superman for an extended period of time. Now I got it. So, and Batman's great to write and Robin being a part of that book, Dick Grayson, Robin being a big part of that book where he's a third partner. Oh my God. He's so much fun to write. Uh, so he's a great character. He's a great character. So we have that, uh, we, what else am I doing? There's other stuff that I can't talk about right now, but it's, it's uh, scripted podcast stuff that I've been doing on the side. And it's been a lot of fun fiction, you know, scripted podcast. And, and I think you'll know in the next few weeks, I just don't think they've announced it yet. What else do I have on my plate? I mean, a ton of stuff. Um, but those, that's the, that's the bulk of it at this moment. But again, ask me next week and the answer will be completely different. <laughs> Well, uh, good luck with the, the human eyes. That sounds really interesting. I uh, would like to check that out. Um, and then uh, do you still do shows? You still do appearances? I, I'm putting a toe back in those waters. It's scary, you know, but I did one in Canton, Ohio uh, oh. a few months ago, one day show. Um, and I'll be in Roanoke, Virginia in August, I want to say. Uh, I'm, it, but I'm taking it you know, warily. I just, I'm, you know, I'm not immunocompromised, but at the same time, I'm not 25 either. And mm-hmm. so I need to be careful and just feel good about what we, and I, I'm, I'm a big believer in taking the precautions that we ought to take as a society. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, I, that, again, once more, a very long answer to a very short question, which is apparently my specialty, but <laughs> that's the answer is that we I'm getting back into that very slowly. Well, we encourage people to, to go to markwade.com. Uh, although it looks like, um, your appearances haven't been updated in a little while. So (laughs) I don't know if they'll get, get your, your upcoming ones, but, uh, certainly keep an eye out there, but you have a lot of great material on markwade.com. So we encourage people to go and check that out. Thank you. Especially if you're, if you're wanting to know how to break into comics and what to do and how to be a writer and, all that stuff. I mean, I really, there's a lot of tutorial stuff there. Take a look. Oh, speaking of which, it totally blanked. Um, my big book, you know, how to create comics the Marvel way. It's coming out in ostensibly July 4th. Like it may not because of supply chain issues or maybe later or whatever, but that's, you know, Marvel conscripted me to do a book that was complete. It's not just how to draw Marvel care the Marvel universe. It's, it's everything you need as a comics creator to tell a story, you know, for taking you from pitch to plot, 
to script, to art, to lettering, to coloring, to inking, to every, you know, wow. a chapter, very in-depth chapter on every single discipline. And it doesn't mean that you're going to come away from there being Andy Kubert or Tom King. It means that here's the fundamentals you need to know in order to tell a story and, and a little more than fundamentals, because it's no fun just to make it just the fundamentals. It's, yeah. it's more fun to say, and by the way, here's some stuff I've learned over the years that you might, some secrets that you might want to know. And that's coming out sometime this summer. Well, that sounds like a must read for yeah, any definitely. comic yeah. fan enthusiast or anyone who has a hint of wanting to, to someday break into the, the, the industry. So uh, thanks for the heads up on that. We'll keep an eye out for it. And I think that's it. I think, uh, you know, I got nothing. I, I that's, that's, that's it for the time being. Or you gave plenty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More than enough. So thanks Mark for, for being on the show and, and, and wrapping cap with us uh, as cap fans, this has been a real treat. Well, and it's been a treat for me too. I appreciate it. I like the, you asked some questions I haven't thought about in a while and, and I, you're not asking me the same six questions that everybody asked me because that's when I feel like a doll with a string in the back, you just pull the string and I've rated this with Alex Ross or whatever. My, my standard pat answers, but you're not setting me up for that. You're asking me real questions and I very much appreciate it. So um, I'm happy to, you know, sometime in the future, come back again, if you like, and we'll talk cat more. Yeah, that would be great. great. All right, Bob, that was one heck of a conversation with Mark Wade. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, it was great him taking us through each one of his Captain America projects and, and letting us know his thoughts uh, behind them, the stories behind the stories. Uh, great, great talk with, with Mark. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think I really, uh, it should have surprised me because he, he's such a brilliant guy, but he has such a recollection of, you know, what went into stories, the history of the stories, what his thinking was. I mean, that, I mean, he's got a huge body of work, Rick, that he's pulling from, you know, but he's got a categorical knowledge, uh, not only of the continuity of Cal uh, and the mythos itself, but everything that he's contributed. Um, amazing. Yeah, he's, he's known for that in the industry. He, he has, he's known for having an encyclopedic knowledge of, of uh, comic books, but more importantly, um, of, of, of the continuity, right? Yeah. Uh, he, he just, he, he, he can re- recant a lot of stuff. So um, yeah, yeah, it was great talking with him. So uh, coming up next episode, come back for episode number 79, and we're going to revisit the road to the captain. This is going to be part three of our eight part series featuring the 1987 story by Mark Grunwald, where at this point, we're going to be covering Captain America 333 through 335. This is where John Walker is introduced as the new Captain America. And what is going on with Steve Rogers? So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. We'll, 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 we'll go over those three issues in next week's episode, number 79. Just a feast of riches. <laughs> yeah what he said all right well bob as always it's been fun wrapping cap with you it has let's do it again real soon all right he's bob lucius i'm rick verbonis and you've been listening to another episode of the captain america comic book fans podcast (laughs) 